Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and we have the privilege of having Michelle Howard back with us because inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> Diane, that's a perfect intro. We are so, as you said, we are so privileged to have Michelle here with us today. When we spoke with Michelle this summer, her podcast really stirred up a lot of fantastic conversation and encouragement in a lot of our listeners. We've heard constantly that people wanted to hear more. In fact, they had two particular questions that they wanted us to put to Michelle. And so we have been working out our calendars so as to be able to have this beautiful opportunity to chat again. And so for us, we're having one conversation in an afternoon, but it's going to actually be divided into two separate episodes because they're about two very different and yet very connected things. So in our first episode, we are going to talk with Michelle about what it is that she says to a brand new patron family when they join her library. She had mentioned in her interview with us that she always takes them by the hand and gives them a little bit of a a 20 to 30 minute talk explaining what the library is in its core principles, why it matters, and how they can use it well. And, And everybody kept saying, how can we learn more about that talk? We want to hear about that talk. And then the second conversation that we're going to have was about something else Michelle said in the interview. She mentioned that her oldest son attended Hillsdale College and that he had a complete living books education at home. And when her son was nearing ninth grade, she reached out to Hillsdale College to say, hey, how do I put together a transcript for my son when this is the approach we're taking? And um, she talked about the portfolio that she ended up using and how much Hillsdale loved and appreciated that. So we're going to pick Michelle's brain a little bit on that as well. So with that, Michelle, you really, you have such wisdom. A, it's from a lot of practical experience, but you have prayed your way through this and it's obvious your answers are so sound and so useful to people and life-giving to people. Well, that would be a sign that the Lord has shown up. The only thing I can say is that it has really stunned me how much he cares about this. I mean, I, he's altogether good. So of course he cares about good things. I, but I mean, in a much more specific sense, he's got a lot of things on his mind. (laughs) (laughs) Again, unlimited capacity. But if you think about it in the whole overall scheme of things, I would have thought that, you know, overseeing little living libraries here and there would have been pretty minor for him. But I have been simply flabbergasted at how many times the Lord has shown up in such a powerful way. And of course, he's teaching me through that, that there's much more at stake here than we can ever fathom. We may have talked about that last time, but I feel that we were all raised to think of reading as a skill set. Yes. Can you look at black ink on white paper, turn it into a letter, turn those letters into a word, a word into a sentence, a sentence into paragraph, etc. And if you can do that, and if you know some phonics rules, you are a reader. Mm. And that is, again, to take 98% of the value right out of it, to take the divinity out of it, mm-hmm. um, to take the spiritual nature out of it, and to reduce it to just something 
morphological, something that just quavering cerebral mass can do. That's exactly what the world seems to do to everything. Take out the beauty, the majesty, the power, the eternity, the impact, everything. And so even the most well-meaning of parents and, and come in and they'll say things like, it doesn't really matter. I don't think what my kid is reading just as long as they're reading. Oh, so not the case. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it is. They're coming by it honestly. Again, there's no criticism in that statement. This is how the culture educated or to think of them at reading as a skill set. Right. I've even had well-meaning parents say, I don't care if they're reading about zombies, you know, ghosts, the walking dead. It doesn't matter to me just as long as they are reading. So they have been taught to, again, think of it as a cerebral process that their kid is just practicing. Right. We have been robbed of the awareness that reading is actually the number one conveyance for deep meaning to the deepest of hearts. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you why we know it's important, not only because the Lord shows up, which of course is the most important, but because the left has tried to take over these fields. They wouldn't have taken over libraries. They wouldn't have taken over youth publishing. They wouldn't have taken over education if they didn't realize the power they're in. If you ever wonder, does this really matter? Should Mm -hmm. I really have a soft opening this Saturday, (laughs) Diane? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because there's an aggressive desire to own Uh, libraries by our ideological opponents. One thing for me is that in Wyoming, because we're so small, we're usually so backward and a little bit behind the times and very conservative, mainly, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that many, many people refuse to see what's happening in the libraries because they just say that can't happen here. Right. Right. And then when you want to show them what's happening, they don't want to look. Yeah. We we know that can't happen here. And so this is kind of a head em off at the past sort of thing where the, these need to be here when people do finally say, oh my gosh, it's happening mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, we got the alternative here. A very interesting thing happened. There is a group, there's about almost 400 all or mostly all <laughs> women in there, many of whom are old school lending librarians <laughs> and all these women who are starting to discern, should I do this? Can I do this? How do I do this? And all of us in the middle who are somewhere in the process of doing this, a woman comes in and says, you all are well-intentioned and well-meaning, but you need to stop calling yourselves librarians. You do not have a master's degree in library and information science. You have not been trained. You need to go take some classes and work on a degree. (laughs) Praise God for Sherry Early, who goes in to clarify, and she tries to push back against Sherry Early, who says, well, actually, I do have a master's degree in library science. (laughs) For two days, this woman fought with us. Wow. That we did not have the right to call ourselves librarians. But it was fascinating because they, uh, and she argued from the perspective that we're diminishing the work that librarians do because we are just well-intentioned but untrained people who don't understand what a library is. And we realized that the heart of the question is, no, they don't understand what a library is. They have changed the libraries from a place Uh where true, good, and beautiful books are being shared with families Uh for their edification, to create in them good citizenry, to create in them good disciples of the Lord and and curious lifelong learners. And we've turned that upside down and turned it into a machine by which we can indoctrinate people into a particular narrow way of thinking. 
She did grant that we could continue what we're doing. We just had to stop calling ourselves librarians. Uh, isn't that something? We needed to call ourselves circulation clerks. <laughs> I'm working 125 hours a week. I'm sorry. I'm not just a clerk. Amen. There's so many things embedded there, which obviously we can all see. So I don't even know why there's any point in me mentioning it. But <laughs> you can see that this woman has embedded in herself a definition of the source of authority. Amen. And it's not the source of authority that all of us know to be true. Yes. It's mm -hmm. not even a legitimate sense of authority. Mm -hmm. It's a sense of authority that's only even existed for a short time right. in the whole history of the world. Right. But it's the only source of authority she has personally experienced. And she probably doesn't even realize that. Because I think when we were here last time, I told the story of me even beginning home education, which ties into this so closely. Again, yes. not all of my library members are home educators, but a lot of them are because that's who's seeking. But I was literally ready to duplicate everything I'd ever had in school because right. I thought it just was. Right. It's all I had ever known. I didn't mean to defy God. I didn't even know he would have an opinion on the matter. <laughs> so that that is the ultimate authority is when yeah. you don't even realize it's an authority. Yeah. And so that Poor gal has imbibed deeply a sense of the source of authorities without, like me, ever having known to even question that. Is that valid? Like when she's saying you can't call yourself because you're not this, that, or the other thing. But who even gave that other party the right to decide that? When did they co-op that term? By what authority do they own that term? Correct. You know, it's not mm -hmm. in the dictionary. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Constitution. Where's this authority coming from? I feel like that's a question we actually have to ask ourselves quite often. I was just talking with a lovely mom 30 minutes ago before I raced over here, and she's like, I would love to do a literature-based, a living books approach, but I don't think I would ever have the confidence to strike out on my own. Mm -hmm. I need, you know, somebody to tell me what to do. That's that same mindset. Again, I started there myself, and I would still be there if the Lord hadn't been merciful enough to hit me upside the head. <laughs> but we have to start asking these questions. That to-do list that you're doing, what is the authority behind that to-do list? Is it legitimate? Is it God-ordained? Does it have his definitions? And does it have your children or your patrons in mind? The answer to that is always no. And so we have to go to the ultimate authority. I mean, what a privilege that we actually have a personal relationship with the ultimate authority right. of the entire cosmos from <laughs> from before time existed until after time existed. Wow. Right. He's the author, the author, and his son <laughs> is the word. There's a bumper sticker waiting to happen right there. Oh, yeah, that is that is so, so, so rich. We, the Lord's been really putting it on my heart. We need to walk boldly where the Lord calls us to walk boldly and appealing to his authority. That's exactly what the disciples did. You can't be doing this. No, no. We, 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 when God tells us to do it, we don't look to the left or right, whatever man says, we go ahead and do that. So Amen. there is a confidence that's born of knowing the real authority, you know, under which we operate. And so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Well, we're so thrilled to have you back today. And I want you to know your episode is the most popularly downloaded episode in our entire oh. stable of oh. shows. <laughs> Bigger than the authors we've had on and everything. Everybody oh. is so excited. And I also want you to know that since you've been on, I know of at least a dozen libraries that have come out of the woodworks. Wow. Praise the Lord. Wow. And there are so many more women joining these, you know, groups IO or the League of Lending Librarians saying, I don't know, but I keep <sighs> hearing this 
and I'm feeling this and I'm curious. So I'm going to watch, I'm going to see. And then we keep telling them you can do this and it doesn't have to look like Michelle's library. It doesn't have to look like Sandy Hall's library. It doesn't have to look like my library. It's going to be your library. It could be in a bus. It could be in a bus. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so they are gaining confidence little by little. They are gaining confidence. It must have been thrilling to you to watch libraries come on board over the last 30 years. But now the growth bloom because the time is now and they are so necessary right now. They really are. I'm so glad you used that word gaining confidence, though, because that ties into what we were just talking about. If the Lord calls you to do it, that's the end of the question. (laughs) There's nothing more to debate at that point. There is no higher authorization than the Lord's calling. And whatever he calls you to do, he's going to somehow equip it and cause it to be... Again, I know that last time I told the story of the Lord blowing up my heart, I call it a spiritual bomb going off at the top of the stairs at the last day of my first year of homeschooling. And every single thing that has ever come about through my library, through other libraries, has come from that same mm-hmm. that same explosion mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Of, of spiritual energy. Because there's no inertia with God. There's no resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no loss. Right. So when you get called... That's your own little spiritual bomb that's going to go off in your heart. Yes. And there will never be, that energy will never wane. Mm-hmm. It's going to continue to expand again if you think of the proverbial rock being thrown into the pond and those circles going outward. They die out in a pond just because of the resistance with the water. Never is going to die out in your calling as a librarian. Amen. It's never going to die out. It's going to continue going outward and outward and outward and outward and then into multiple generations and then those generations and on into eternity. We are so privileged to play this role, to be called to do this. We live in a culture that tries to convince us that we don't matter, whether it's as moms, as wives, as voters, as whatever, that we don't matter. And this is not true. We matter infinitely. The Lord decided that we, who we are, where we are, that we matter and that we have people to minister to. We can Uh serve him in obedience and he does the work. We just show up. He does the work. This privilege, as you say, of doing this library is like, it's like a tangible thing for a spiritual thing. We can Uh actually see books being checked out. We can actually see children coming back in and wanting to tell us all about the book they read and why they loved it or why they didn't like it. And you watch the connections that are happening in their mind. You watch the way that they are growing and and developing and realizing their own uniqueness and created beauty. You get to do this as a librarian, mm-hmm. whether you have yes. 50 books that you're sharing with the moms mm-hmm. in your playgroup, or you have a thousand books like Diane does, or you have 5,000 like I do, or you have a big, big library like you do. Mm-hmm. Every library matters, no matter what it looks like, it matters. A hundred percent because every soul matters. Amen. Mm-hmm. And obedience always matters. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the most astonishing things about God is that why I think we talked about this last time. He could centralize everything and run everything from Jerusalem. I actually would have loved that, you know, <laughs> no sin nature, yeah. you know, the Lord just running the show. But he kept decentralizing. He kept, yes. you know, all the way down to the individual family. And we could just all have angels fly us books from a central library in Jerusalem. But he doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. He lets Diane do one in Wyoming. He lets you do one in Wisconsin mm-hmm. because he just loves to give us this this feeling of giving, serving, loving, watching that growth process happen that you described, Sarah, which is the ultimate reward. Mm-hmm. You cannot put a price on it. Mm-hmm. He saw fit to share this with us. So there again, yeah, there is no higher authorization and the rewards that the Lord built into it go beyond description. You won't see them until you enter in. Yes. You have to put your foot out on that water. But mm-hmm. once your foot is out on that water and the Jordan River starts piling up, and you walk across on dry ground, then you start to see the rewards that are embedded. But we can trust God's character that they are there. They are there. Amen. Amen. Well, Michelle, last time you said two things that set off a bell in people's minds, and they both and they okay. want answers to both of these questions. Okay. <laughs> so the all right, the first one is, you told us that when new patrons join your library, you mm-hmm. give them sort of the orientation speech, and everybody wants to know. What does that look and sound like? And can we steal it? (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. That's so funny. I'm glad to help with that. One of the things that I want to start with always is that parents already intuitively know that whatever the worldview is in the culture, they know it's showing up in government. Mm -hmm. They know it's showing up in entertainment. It just is so hard to imagine that it's actually going to show up in youth literature. But in actual fact, youth literature is the leading edge of cultural change because if you can capture the children, as we know, you're going to capture the next generation. We already referred earlier just today that the left wouldn't have bothered to take over youth publishing and libraries if they did not understand that themselves. Right. So parents have a sense of that. But I think we all kind of come into it just assuming, oh, they're children's books. They're going to be precious, sweet, safe. No, Mm -mm. they are trying absolutely to change. So um, that is where we begin with that ideological, spiritual base of awareness. And then we're going to show you how that plays out. How are the books different? We have to keep in mind that almost anyone, well, everyone really of child rearing age, in other words, those that are going to come to your library have lived a shorter period of time since when the books changed. Right. They've never seen an actual living book in their lifetimes. Because they've already been taken out of the library. So they don't, they didn't grow up with them. Yes. A long, a hundred percent. That's so true. And that's the loss of the positive. But now we have the addition of the negative, which is that what they were given was so, was so undesirable and so ineffective Mm -hmm. and so sterile Mm -hmm. that they don't even have a desire to read themselves. Right. They don't have a positive experience with the power that it can have. So there isn't even a desire really to have it be different. Right. So that's really a double loss. So when a parent is there, I mean, first of all, big kudos to them that they cared enough to come, to drive, to pack up, you know, to make that effort. They're considering spending on a membership. This is the finest human being in the world. doesn't matter that they haven't yet had an experience, but we have to realize that just because we love them and understand them, they don't have that yet. Right. In fact, they're probably there because they're feeling pressed to do so if you're a good parent X or, and maybe they've heard that the books are better, but they're like better, 5% better than miserable. Well, you know, that's still not very good, you know, so why am I bothering? So I 
I think the really important thing is for them to understand that there is a complete ideological uh, diametrically opposite situation in a living book and that they're not just 5% better than what they had. They are completely other. I think we used that phrase yeah. last time we talked, yeah. but now we're really going to zero on this. They are completely other. Mm-hmm. Until a parent understands that they don't have really a reason to make this huge step into this entire new world. And the fact that they are of a completely different uh, spiritual nature is so important to, you know, why, why they'll have that effect. So I help parents know three things. I tell them that generally we understand they're walking in the door because they have concerns about the morality that's in the books today Mm -hmm. and they're wise to have that concern. But the reason that the morality is so poor is it's because it's ripened fruit on a tree whose roots changed over 50 years ago. Mm. And that's when the literature changed from being living, which in other words, has a Judeo-Christian base. That's why it's living. God is life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nothing's living unless it has him as its base. So as the culture started moving his very nature and the way he made humans to be out of literature and it ceased to be living, you know, that that's, that's a change at the root level. So everything that grows up from that new root is going to end up in fruit that is really rank. Right. And instead of it being a God-ordered world, a world that resonates with his character, it was a man-sized world where everything was divided and conquered, reductionized into tiny little bits where the implication was going to be, what do you mean, big cosmos? No, it's just physical material. It's just atoms, protons, and neutrons. We've got this. If there is a God, he can go retire. We can run the world. Well, as soon as you <laughs> imply to a child that the world is completely manageable under human hands, then those human hands quickly uh, Im- promote themselves to the point where they get to decide what male is, what female is, what good is, what nationhood means, etc. Mankind doesn't stop in his desire to remake the world in his own image, to become his own creator, so to speak. That's what's at stake. And when parents start to see that by seeing the difference in the books, they begin to see a door open to an entirely different world that they want their children to go through. In fact, I hear this many, many times. I have been aching for this, but didn't know what I was aching for. That's right. I have sensed mm-hmm. this, but I didn't really know what I was sensing. Yes. Mm-hmm. I looked at all these books and I felt like something was missing, but I couldn't define what was missing. But now that I hear it said, that is exactly what I've wanted for, longed for, been looking for, or sensed was inadequate. Their love of truth and their love of God has already begun preparing them to receive this. No one had ever just showed them ta-da, and this is what it looks like if you still have a Judeo-Christian view of the book, the view of the world, and the view of the child, the reader, the learner themselves. Mm -hmm. It's that deep. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So you start with the premise that the libraries today are representative of the culture today. And so Uh the books that we find in those libraries are going to be books that are not books that were told for their true good and living value, but were told for their propagationist views and their potential to form and shape our children in the culture and the culture norms that we, that we are experiencing generally. And to, if I may interject to be even more specific, the books will prepare them to receive all of their information from a centralized uh, elitist source. Yes. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And to accept it as a download. Yes. Without any interaction or analysis. There's, that's extremely important. And it's interesting. One of the things that we've been talking about in other parts of what we're doing here at Plumfield Moms is we've been noticing the great dearth of historical fiction 
that's being published today. So not republished, but new quality historical fiction, because there is a desire to separate us from our past. And we uh-huh. do not want children to enter into these older ideas, older times and places and ways of thinking. Uh-huh. We want to separate them from that. And we don't want them to know what really happened in World War II. We don't want them to understand Hitler's youth and how disgusting and pervasive it was and how easily it led, our, led those children astray. Because if we don't tell them that, then they won't recognize it when it's happening to them. That's very true. I think uh, one of our volunteers, Beth, sent me an article that in Canada, there's been some discussion of removing any book published like prior to 2008 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because the concept is that back then we were, quote unquote, colonizers. And unenlightened. Unenlightened. Mm -hmm. In other words, not reshaped according to the current elitist view. Right. But we have to realize that that anything that puts the child into a passive mode is a problem because mm. now the child is not just learning. He's learning who to be and who to be is passive. That's not what we want. Right. Okay? And at the right. same time, then, if all they're doing is just accepting pre-thought thoughts from someone in some imaginary ivory tower, it doesn't even matter if it's morally correct, if it's just this is the world of butterflies, but everything in it is miniaturized. You don't have any of that symphonic whole. Mm-hmm. and everything just becomes a part. Yeah. Um, you, you can see the elevation of mankind's ability to rule and then getting the reader prepared to accept that. And if we say that we want our children to be independent thinkers and capable of analysis and synthesis, then we never better put them in front of a book that doesn't ask them to do exactly that. That's right. What happened before 2008 is almost everything. What happened after 2008 is very little. Very little. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so what can they really write about? Their brand new spanking world as if they, it hasn't been the first time everybody ever thought of restarting civilization in their own <laughs> image. How has that ever worked out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you love what the culture is doing, this whole movement is probably not for you. <laughs> if you don't love what the world mm. is doing, we can tell you why. And we can tell you what we can yes. do in response to that. Yes, that's beautifully put. Yes. And I love yeah. what you're saying about, well, just the need to know history. I mean, we talk about that all the time, but I teach in a homeschool program. And we had a student in my literature class who had been spent most of his life, I think, in public school. And he's very intelligent. But we were talking about something, and I don't remember what it was now, but it was something old, of course, because I'm picking the books. <laughs> and somebody said something and he goes, well, yeah, but we didn't used to be as smart back then. Mm. And everybody just went, what? <laughs> and then we had a discussion from there. I said, excuse me, we're going to talk about that for just a minute. But that's the yeah. attitude of kids who are not getting their history is that, well, yeah, but people weren't as smart back then. Now we've got it all figured wow. out. The hubris. Yes, the yep. hubris. My 11th grader is taking the PSAT tomorrow uh, just as a diagnostic tool. And so he, the last couple of days, has been doing some PSAT prep. And he, he just looked at me today in the middle of the prep and said, this is ridiculous. He said, this is painfully easy. He said that like the sixth grade CLT exam is, is more rigorous than this. He said, uh. I just read a whole paragraph with eight sentences and embedded in the paragraph was, It was 623 meters long. And he said, and the question was, how long was the object? (laughs) 
He said, so all I had to do was go back and read that and find that? He said, at least with the CLT, it's like you had to deduce something from that paragraph and then come to a conclusion. He said, this is the exam that's going to potentially earn scholarships, whether or not I can pull out a factoid from the middle of a paragraph. Insane. It's, wow, that is serious business because, again, they're trying to form him. Your job Mm -hmm. is to parrot back what we tell you. Yes. And the other one, it's you've got to be able to wrestle with powerful ideas yourself and figure out what is truth and then have enough virtue to go out there and implement it. Exactly. Man, that difference is Mm, is, radical. It's it's galaxies apart from each other. Totally. So ladies... Gentlemen, when you're thinking about what you're doing, this is the stake. Yes. This is the enormity. This is the scale of the difference that you are making. Mm-hmm. It is not just being a clerk <laughs> and shelving books. Exactly. It is literally ushering kids in, teenagers in to this completely other world of being what God called you to be, which is an actual molder and shaper and and of of deep truth i don't mean we generate truth but we get it and we we wrestle with it we work with it that's right what are we going to make of this what are we going to how does this change things how Mm -hmm. does this need to be implemented that's so different from find the most superficial factoid and can you prove to me that you will parrot back what i said you don't say you don't think Mm -hmm. you don't interject you don't create you don't initiate you i the only thing i ever want to hear from you is what i just told you myself if i hear you repeat my my words and my voice, then you are quote unquote successful. Correct. What kind of a culture arises from that? Arrogant. Right. That is how different these books are. Mm. Yes. Because the more you read of the good books, the more humble you become because you know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. when you learn how to do what you're talking about with, oh, I got all the facts right from this paragraph that I read, that creates an arrogance. And so we have a lot of young people who can't even hear what they don't know because they've been told all their lives that everything they do is wonderful. And they memorize the facts. Yeah. They know the facts. And, and, and you don't know the facts. You don't know the facts as well as they do. So what do you really know? Well, I know how to find the facts and whether or not to determine if those facts are accurate or not. If they, whether or not they bear truth. I know what wow. to do with the facts. Do you? Yes. yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Being an echo chamber for an elitist author is not actually success. Amen. It's not actually even intelligence. Mm. It's actually accepting a debased and subsidiary position. That's, That's right. not what God called us to. He didn't call us, it, us, us to it as librarians, as parents, or as even as students. Mm-hmm. Again, the real God with all power and authority and majesty is the one who elevates us. That's right. It's it's minuscule mankind right. that devalues humans. I mean, again, the ironies are just incredible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in- big ideas raise big kids to go out and do big things. Mm-hmm. You know, I just finished rereading the landmark book, Alexander the Great by John Gunther. Uh-huh. And there's this striking paragraph, uh, maybe about chapter four or five, in which it, when Gunther explains that uh, Alexander's father was actually an incredibly powerful king all by uh-huh. himself. Ex- Philip of Macedon. Yes, one of the best kings ever in recorded history. And it was an incredibly rare thing for a powerful king to have a son who would eclipse him. Because so often sons are trying uh-huh. to match their father and they're not doing their own thing. They're not, just, they're not realizing their own role. 
But when you realize that Philip was wise enough to hire Aristotle to uh-huh. be the tutor of Alexander, uh-huh. and who Aristotle, in his own humility, said, we need to read Homer. <laughs> this is how great men are formed. <laughs> whoa, 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 wait, just a minute. The, the big box school. Philip didn't put Alexander into a big box school? <laughs> no. With no, a really great he... marching band program? Ah. <laughs> You mean there wasn't a board that had a preset conveyor belt development plan for every single kid in the district, one size fits all? Actually, Philip uh, went to task with all the masters who thought that Alexander should only do this or that or the other thing. Philip said, I want my son to be expertly trained in military tactics. I want his body to be physically trained and I want his mind and soul to be trained. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> this uh-huh. is a father who advocated for his son and uh-huh. did so in, in a phenomenal way. I actually use that example a lot when I'm doing consultations when parents say, but I'm afraid to have a customized education. I say, you mean you're afraid to raise an Alexander the Great, but for but for good, you <laughs> right. know, not just for domination. Right. Because I said, always, the, the more the wealthy, the higher ranking, the more royal you were, the more customized your education was. That's right. The more customized. What you just listed from Philip was, this is what my son needs. And it was customized. Right. Again, the one size fits all is dehumanized. Mm-hmm. I think we said it last time, but again, human beings have a very finite capacity to know very much of anything, right. let alone to know the inside of other people very well. Right. So they have to limit education to a one size fits all conveyor belt. That's all they're capable of doing. Right. But God has an infinite capacity to know and to love and an omniscience to know the future. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he's automatically going to call for a customized education so that those needs can be met and toward that individual future. And so that the high level of intimate knowing that equals love can occur. That's right. That is a very, very high calling again. And as a librarian serving home educating families or anyone looking for a customized program for their kids through whatever means, it's again, really a privilege to help that process happen. And that is the the beauty of the library is that, yes, we can go right alongside those home educating families and we can uh-huh. help them. They can come to us and say, I'm studying ancient Greece. What do you yep. have? But we can also go alongside literally anybody who walks through our doors and simply let them choose books. We can help them to choose books because we know these books. We've uh-huh. curated these books and we can help them to choose books that will be good for them, regardless of who they are and where they are. I always say to my patrons, It is my mission that every book in this library will be a trustworthy book. Not every book Uh will be perfect for every family, but I Uh can say that there, to my knowledge, there are no books in here that will cause any real trouble generally. One gets through the cracks, you just let me know. Yes, yes. (laughs) But I think the beautiful thing here is that when what you're saying is when we bring people into our libraries, we need to show them some of our books and show them why this is so completely different than what they're going to find somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That's why it's worth the effort to find these books, to rescue them and bring them in and share them precisely because they are so very different. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do also have some of the best new books that are being made if they're beautiful. The nature of the book has to be original to what God, I believe, means for education, learning, reading, discovery, personal development to become. That's right. That is not, God's truth never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. So that's what we're looking for. Beautiful. 
Well, so Michelle, families come in and you walk them through and you show them different books and you explain Uh to them the history of libraries, right? And how they've come about. What else do you say? What else would uh, all of us aspiring or baby librarians, what do we need to know? I, uh, boy, that's, that should be an easy question to answer, but so many kind of big things things raised. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of raised to my mind. What I keep emphasizing over and over again is that a modern book you will see will only offer clinical, sterile, reductionist, separated, segmented factoids to the reader's physical cerebrum. Yes. If, if a human being were a biological memory stick, that's as far as a modern book will get. Again, because mankind can measure, weigh, EEG, or MRI a human being's brain. Mm-hmm. What they can't have any control over, what they can't even measure or weigh, is a human soul. That's right. They're terrified yeah. of the human soul. It's beyond them. Right, right. Every parent that comes in the door is aching for their child's soul to be fed at the deepest yes. level. Yes. Now, they don't necessarily know, though, that education is going to feed the soul. They think that the soul is going to get fed at church. And yes, I hope it does, of course. But they don't realize that history is can also feed the soul. And math can feed the soul. Yes. And, and literature and geography and music and art, because it's all things that were created by a great God and he's revealed in everything he has made. And I'm not even over-spiritualizing it. In history, we really see God's principles at work. Is a person accepting God's principles and implementing them in their civilization or are they defying him? And what happens as a result? Every single time there's lost devastation, brokenness, poverty, bondage. We don't want that. No. So we see God's core core character. So the, the what I'm trying to help families understand is this deep longing that you have way over here on the side that you wonder when you're going to get to someday to somehow feed your child's soul that you thought you didn't have any time for because, man, I got to do all this homeschooling or I got to run my kids here and there and they got so much going on at school. And so I'm never going to have time to feed their soul. No, when you're in a really great living book, in other words, it resonates with God's principles and God's nature and with the reader's nature as God made it to be. Everything becomes soul feeding. Your main four subjects, your meat and potatoes, your daily plan becomes soul feeding. That is so thrilling for a parent. They think they've just got to get education over with and then the orthodontia over with and the chores over with and dinner over with and the dishes cleaned and maybe I'll have two minutes to address my kid's soul at the end of the day. All day is soul food. You know, if we just have the right vision for education and the right materials and we're targeting the right part of them. As we said before, the Bible never even mentions the word brain one single time and God Mm -hmm. made it. He never sees the brain as the target of learning. Most complex organ ever Ever yeah. created the yes. Lord made it, and He doesn't even doesn't even claim yeah. it in the scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> Not worth bothering with <laughs> because it's a tool. Right. to the deeper soul and spirit. He talks about the soul, spirit, whatever word you want to use, the metaphorical heart all the time. Right. This is the only part of us that's eternal. Every parent is longing to touch the eternal part of their child. And yet they spend almost every day teaching to the child's brain mm-hmm. because the brain is what the world says is the focus of education. At the same time, every parent says, I don't think I can home educate because I don't remember a single thing that I ever learned. And yet they want to Ask me how I know, because it did the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Turn right around and duplicate that system. We have this opportunity to, you know, to step out into the deep end of the pool and really do what Philip of Macedon did for Alexander. And that is 
customize a profound education, you know, of real meaning. And every single day, every single subject is a step toward that. So as we're comparing the books, look which one is trying to download a factoid to your brain, which we all know you're going to do a brain dump on as soon as you're done. And look what is trying to stir up the heart, inspire the heart, engage the heart, create a love for that thing in the heart that will be eternal. The heart never forgets. The brain forgets almost instantly. Mm. So you have the opportunity right in your hand between the book in your left hand and the book in your right hand to either feed your child's brain and good luck with that um, or feed your child's heart and will never ever be forgotten. It will always impel them and motivate them and inspire them. And that inspiration will be that outflowing force that will never ever dissipate. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the offer that you're making them. So what you're saying is that when families come into our libraries, one of the key words we can use is that of love. Because God is love, and he himself is the author, his son is the word, and stories are a way in which he communicates his love to us. And if the books that our kids are liking, binging on, reading never-endingly, but aren't necessarily better because of, that's not love. We want our children to be reading books that truly creates a loving thoughtful, soulful experience for them. They love to return to Louisa May Alcott because they feel challenged and excited and safe in her embrace. They love to return to Treasure Island because it it causes their imagination to become alive and fire in all cylinders. We want our families to love the library and love the books they're reading. And you're not going to get that from the public library. Love is love doesn't factor into it at all. God is love. So if you're in a fight against God, you're in a fight against love. Amen. And to truly know someone is very closely tied to truly loving them. You yeah. don't pay attention to who an individual is if you don't love them. Yeah. So when you give a child that which they really need, that means you knew them enough to take action on their behalf. That is a form of love. Yes. And the fact that God is placing such a high value on each individual to meet them where they are, to make a customized plan for them, to set them in a family that loves them, to try to draw them upward on a personal journey of discovery and development not a mindless, thoughtless conveyor belt that's going at its pace. And if it's too fast for you or too slow for you, too bad for you, that's all the world can muster. The Lord is going to meet you right where you are and personally hand develop you, Mm -hmm. blossom you. I'm going to turn that into a verb. That's a deep (laughs) level of love. Mm -hmm. That's a deep level of love. And thinking about Treasure Island, for example, yes, it fires the imagination 100%, but even more deeply, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, and, and you would say the same thing too, but I'm just going to add to you, you stop talking about it. And if you would have continued, I'm sure you would have said the same thing. It resonates with the masculine desire Amen. to do something epic, yes, to do something the- sacrificial and brave. That is the hunger that is in our boys. Yes, Every single boy wants to do something mind-numbingly brave and breathtakingly risky yes. for just a shockingly <laughs> galactic output. And we give them adverbs to double underline. It is a tragedy <laughs> of the highest proportions. Yes. So when you really love a boy, mm-hmm. you are embracing and cherishing that masculinity and you want everything that goes inside of him to resonate with what God made men to be. Yes. You have a young man in formation right there. How can you feed his actual masculinity, which is at the very core of his being? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Again, it's always deep. Yeah. This is what the child is actually longing for. This is what the teen is actually longing for. Right. This is what the parent is actually longing to accomplish. And what do, what do the kids and the parents think? I can't think about any of that because I got to get my stupid schoolwork done. Right. And, right. and the schoolwork is become the enemy of the actual knowing, loving, development, inspiration, formation. God forbid. God forbid. You should have the problem where they're taking their landmarks to bed with them because they don't want to stop yes. reading them. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. what you should have. Yes. The other thing that we were going to talk about was your son's transcript for Hillsdale. And I think mm-hmm. that the last little bit here has been a really good segue into that where okay. you can find the spot where it's not just about libraries, but it's about the education, especially of boys, which mm-hmm. you're going to talk to us. Maybe we could just slide into that. Mm-hmm. So friends, we have really had an exciting conversation with Michelle already. And you know what? We're never going to get all the questions answered just exactly the right way. No. This this recording here today was Diane and I chasing the Holy Spirit with Michelle and listening to what she has to say, which is so precious and valuable. I think the thing that we really want to do is make sure that everybody knows that if you are called to this work, he will equip you. Uh And if you can just be reminded of these truths and grow in confidence and rest in him, you are going to be just fine. Michelle, thank you so much for being here this afternoon. I know that you are busy and we are really grateful that you took the time out of your afternoon to be with us for a while. So friends, we hope that you enjoyed this part of our conversation with Michelle. And now we're going to tease you and tell you, you have to come back next time because the other question that everybody wants the answer to is Michelle, tell us about this living books education portfolio that you did that Hillsdale College was so impressed by. So friends, stay tuned. Next time, we will be talking to Michelle about that. Actually, we're going to talk to her right now. You just have to wait. Sorry about that, friends. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.